I don't know about you, but uh, I think a lot of us struggle to uh, ever grow up, and I think Miranda's a great example of, uh, of that. Just thinking about her and her, her so-called um, dinner party reminded me of uh, a time when I probably should have grown up a little bit, and it, uh, it still affects me when I think about this, uh, this story, because it's an incident that I'd rather forget. We had some people around. We didn't know them very well, but uh, my wife likes to do things very nicely. And so we got out that, and she can distinguish between crockery and cutlery, and we got out the crockery that was really special that we used maybe once a year, the Royal Alberts, you know, that nice white one. And everything was lovely. And uh, first course went very well. Um, And second course was this uh, beautiful, amazing, impossible pie that my wife makes. It's very, very nice. And uh, you just put all the stuff in one thing and mix it up and it sort of somehow forms a layer of pastry on the bottom and it just it really tastes good. And uh, obviously she'd mixed this up during the day and it was in the oven and it all came out looking lovely. Anyway, this, the, the, the lady who was uh, sitting opposite, just the four of us, sitting opposite us, she takes one bite of it and, oh, this is lovely. And she takes another bite and she sinks her teeth into something solid. And uh, she pulls it out and she sort of speculates that, mm, you know, maybe it was a a hard piece of coconut. Um, but I mean, so look at it on the side of the plate. It's, it's quite large and it looked like plastic. And uh, she just about broke her teeth. And so instead of just leaving it there and uh, just leaving a little bit of element of mystery about where this bit of thing came from, I'm looking at this bit of plastic and I'm thinking, how could that have got in the pie? I don't think it was from the coconut. And I look at it a bit harder and I think, and it dawned on me, the plastic came out of one of these, um, I just brought one for an example for you. We used to have a, we used to have a little hand beetle like this and uh, it has plastic gears. And I looked at the plastic and I thought, it could be one of those gears. So what do I do? I get up from the table, I rush into the kitchen, I pull the thing out of the drawer, I look at it, I say, ah, and I bring it back into the table. And I say, <laughs> this is the culprit. That's where the bit of plastic came from. And Heather's sitting there just about dying. And when they went home, I was told that uh, some of those things are better left undone. It's better to, <laughs> to allow a bit of mystery to surround where that bit of plastic came from. Now, there's a verse in the Proverbs that says this. It says, even fools are thought wise if they keep silent <laughs> and discerning if they hold their tongues. So this morning we're going to talk about how we make wise decisions. How do we take responsibility for our lives? How do we take responsibility for our actions um, without, you know, someone like Miranda, I think it's her mother, isn't it, sort of breathing down her neck and telling her what she needs to do and, and how to do it and when to do it. Um, it would be lovely, wouldn't it, if we get to the point where we actually act in a, in a really responsible way uh, almost automatically. And that's what we want to talk about today because I said so, take responsibility. I want to introduce you, first of all, to this thing that I've called it the decision-making continuum. And I think if, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, you'll be able to identify with that, with this, because we take as our, our source, our authority, um, the Bible. And so when we, we read our Bibles, we, we say, well, what God commands, there's no questions about that. We do it. We know that that's the sort of thing we should do. And then on the other side of that, there's also a, uh, another area of absolute where we say, what God forbids, we don't do that. And so in the God commands, we all, uh, God says, you know, Love, love me, love God and love your neighbour and a whole lot of other things that are 
obvious that followers of Jesus should be doing. And then on the other side of that, there's things like uh, stealing and murder and adultery and things like that. And we know, they're no-nos. We shouldn't be doing those things. And so we think those things are pretty obvious. What God commands we do and what God forbids, we leave well alone. But obviously in the middle, you'll see there's a real big grey area. And for all of us, we've got freedom in that area of grey to choose what's best. And so we've got some question marks there. There's some obvious do's and some obvious don'ts. But in the area of grey, how do we make choices? How do we make healthy decisions about the matters that come up in the grey areas? You see, people have a tendency to do one of two things. They, they, they either fail to distinguish between, they make these God's commands as small as they can possibly make them, so there's an enormous area of grey in the middle, or there's other people who want to make God, what God commands and forbids almost the whole picture and no grey at all. Uh, and either of those gets you into trouble. There is this area of grey where we, uh, have, with our God-given wisdom and, and common sense, have got to make some good decisions. And so areas like how do I spend my time? Simple question, how do I spend my time? Who do I spend it with? What places do I go to? What places do I avoid going to? What do I watch? How do I spend my money? Where do I work? These are all areas where we have freedom. But our choices in these areas can either be incredibly life-giving or they can sap the life out of us uh, if we make a wrong one, a bad one. And they're all individual choices. You can't make them for me, I can't make them for you. We've got to make these choices for ourselves. We've got to take responsibility for our own choices in these areas where we have freedom. So how do we make healthy choices? When I was a, uh, a teenager, so it's a long time ago, I was given a, a book by a, an American, his name was Leroy, Leroy Imes, I think must have been American, must have been. And uh, Leroy's story was that he'd been in the US Marines and he'd been involved in a battle in the Second World War in 1944 where the Americans had tried to take this island called Palau in the Pacific. It was a controversial battle because there was a bit of uh, debate about how uh, strategic that island was anyway. But the, the US troops lost about 1,800 troops uh, on that island alone and 8,000 injuries trying to capture an island that they thought would take four days and ended up taking two months. So it was a real uh, debacle. But in the heat of the battle, a, a dying Marine friend of uh, Leroy's uh, grabs out to him and says, mate, I need help. Do you know how to pray? And uh, Leroy had no idea how to pray. Uh, but after the war, when he got home, he found a Bible and he read it right through from the start to the end. He read one of those King James Bibles and he says in his uh, uh, story that actually it got better after that bit where it talked about to the high and mighty King James. Um, and that was just a preface bit. He said when he got into Genesis at the start, it improved and it got better all the way. But he read it right through. And he encountered Jesus and he devoted the rest of his life to helping other people uh, to follow Jesus too. And I, as I read that book, I, I remember just a single page in it. I've still got it somewhere at home. But um, it's the one page that stuck with me because he had four really good questions to ask when faced with a decision in this grey area. And he called them the 6, 8, 10 principles. Thanks. 6, 8, 10. Now, if you've got a mathematical bent, this will mean something to you. If you haven't, it'll mean nothing. But in a, a right-angled triangle, the square on the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the squares on the other two sides. Who knew that? Uh, great. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Arnie, good on you, mate. Um, 
Now, most people talk about three, four, five triangles, don't they? But it works for six, eight, ten, works for nine, twelve, fifteen, whatever. So three squared plus four squared equals five squared. Six squared plus eight squared equals ten squared. You can work it out in your head. Now, why do I tell you that? It's just a memory tool. Because these principles are found in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a letter that Paul, one of the early Christians, wrote in the New Testament. And they're found in chapter 6, chapter 8 and chapter 10. And there are four, four good principles in three verses in those chapters. So I hope that helps you remember, especially if you've got that mathematical bent, 6, 8, 10. And you're, all you have to remember then is they're in 1 Corinthians. And then you've got to search through the chapter to find them, but I hope it'll help you. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10. They're questions that you can have ready when you're trying to decide whether or not to act or to think in a particular way. So let's get the first question. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. And I've really got the first two questions together because I think they're related. Paul says, notice in inverted commas, he says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. And I've suggested that the question we should ask ourselves when faced with anything, is, is it helpful? Is it going to be beneficial for me? The second thing he says is, everything is permissible for me, but I'll not be mastered by anything. So the second question I want to ask myself is, will this thing that I'm embarking on, this activity that I'm engaged in, is it something that's likely to get me in its grip in a negative way that I'm not going to be able to deal with? So he begins with this slogan, everything is permissible for me. I think it was a slogan that was popular in Corinth. If you know anything about Corinth, it was a place of incredible moral laxity. And it was a slogan that some people in the church seem to have adopted for themselves uh, to repeat in order to justify their behaviour. Everything's permissible for me. I'm free. Jesus has made me free. Everything's permissible for me. And uh, there's a sense in which that's right. But we, 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 when we read it, it sounds like very much like today, doesn't it? I'm a, I'm a free agent. I can do whatever I like. Very much like 21st century Western culture. But Paul doesn't deny the truth of the slogan at some level. Everything is permissible for me. See, he knew that now because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, he was free from being bound by the Jewish law. He knew that he could work and travel on the Sabbath, which, which he couldn't do before. He knew that he could interact with Gentiles, which he couldn't do very, very well before. He knew that he, he could eat certain foods, which previously had been called unclean uh, by the Jews and so on. But Paul says, sure, you know, everything may be permissible for me in some sense, but there's these two balancing principles to consider principles that we need to think through when we're asking what is actually helpful and we need to also work out for ourselves will this thing actually gain mastery over me if I'm not careful so is it helpful and could it get me in the script now think about the helpful question think about just the physical mental and spiritual aspects of who you are body mind spirit see I'm free I'm free you know all things are permissible for me I could live on Big Macs and Cokes, not Diet or Zero, real Cokes, and um, Krispy Kreme donuts because they're really good. A lot of sugar, it's beautiful. And um, I love coffee, lots of coffees, 10 a day I reckon. Uh, and exercise, well that's, I don't know, that's for fit people. It's for me so I can do that. You've got freedom to do that. I've got freedom to do that. But we're, it's obvious to us, isn't it, that there's things we need to do in terms of our bodies that are good for us and things that aren't. So, good question. Is it helpful? Think about it when you're eating stuff. Think about when you're thinking about it, whether you exercise or not. Good question. Is it going to be helpful for me? 
Trev keeps reminding me that I should ride a bike. And I'm, I'm, I'm listening here, Trev. I'm, it's going in, but slowly. The second one is uh, our mind. You see, we're free in, in our world with all the TV, movies, all sorts of stuff uh, to bombard our minds with all sorts of things. Um, some of them, you know, incredibly positive, but there's all sorts of images that we can expose ourselves to. Some of them can linger for a long time and some of them can produce a, a mass of contrary emotions in us that aren't helpful. And so it's worth thinking about what the things we, we do, the, the things we see, the ideas we let uh, into our mind, how they actually affect us in the long run. And then for followers of Jesus, there's a, a spiritual aspect of our lives. Paul, in another letter, he talks about walking in step with the Spirit. And you see, we've got a choice day by day whether we choose to do things that are helpful, which is actually walking in step with the Spirit, actually allowing God's very presence to, to be with us and walk with us, or we can just choose to walk in step with what we think is okay ourselves, just do what we think is okay. And uh, so this first question is a really basic question, but it's a really helpful one. Is it helpful? Is it beneficial for me personally? So these first two are pretty much about ourselves. The second idea there is what might get me in its grip. Now let me just take a random example uh, and this is not pointing at anybody or anything but I feel for me I have freedom to watch television and there's nothing inherently wrong with television. Television is great and there's some good aspects of it. But when I ask these two questions, is it helpful uh, and could it get me in its grip, I have to recognise that often it's not beneficial for me to watch television, certainly not too much. It can be an incredible time waster, can't it? stops me from doing things that are probably far more valuable and productive. And I'm not care- I've got to, if I'm not careful, the television can get um, me in its grip to the extent that my whole schedule revolves around the TV schedule because if such and such is on on Monday night, well, actually I can't go out Monday night because I'll miss such and such. Now, that's changed with the world of, uh, of the internet and streaming and all that, but it's, it, it, we, our lives can be, be tied up with not missing certain things, can't they? And so I wonder how that is with you. When I think about it, is it mastery for me? Is it actually something getting its grip on me when I feel uncomfortable because I missed the last episode of MasterChef or Revenge or something? Is it? Is it mastery? It's not just television. Is it mastery for me? And this is one for me. When I can't start the day without a strong cup of coffee or a can of Red Bull or something like that because it gives you wings, you know? Um, (laughs) Is it mastery for me when I feel disconnected if I haven't checked my Facebook in the last two hours, is that potentially something that might be mastering me? Is it mastery for me if my mood on the weekend uh, is pretty much dictated by how my football team went? It's worth thinking about, isn't it? When you move back from Melbourne, you've got used to dealing with that, but <laughs> some of you are probably struggling with that. Is it mastery for me if I feel a lesser person if I'm not wearing the latest you know, designer clothes or shoes or whatever? See, all things are permissible for me, Paul says, but I will not be mastered by anything. So two great questions, aren't they? Is it helpful? And is it likely to get me in its grip? We're incredibly uh, suspect, all of us, I think, to certain addictions. And the the possibility of something getting in its grip often starts very uh, innocently. So we need to be aware. Paul's trying to say, on this idea of freedom, He's trying to say that actually the things that you might think are giving you freedom can very, very easily enslave you. And so freedom, per se, isn't all it's cracked up to be. And so for a follower of Jesus, it's important that nothing 
is allowed to actually give us orders. So not my appetites, not my habits, not the subtle pressures of my culture asking me to conform um, to a certain, certain lifestyle or a certain set of values. So 1 Corinthians 6.12, number 6 of the 6.8.10. Is it helpful? Does it get me in its grip? Well, the third one is uh, from chapter 8, verse 13. Paul says, If what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again so that I'll not cause him to fall. The question I've, I've rephrased that is, uh, will it trip someone else up? So we can do all sorts of things that, that we feel are perfectly harmless for us, but they can trip someone else up. This um, requires a bit of context when you read the verse like this out of the blue. I'll never eat meat again. What's he on about? Now, many new followers of Jesus in Corinth had previously been regular worshippers in pagan shrines, worshipping idols. And that whole scene had this dark sense of mystery and fear about it. And when you feasted at the table of the God, it was as if you were actually partaking of the God yourself, making the life of that God yours. So you were deeply entrenched in this idolatry and pagan worship. And you were part also of the associated uh, heavy drinking and casting off of all moral restraint that was typical of those pagan temples. And there were little girls and, and boys waiting out the back who'd do whatever you wanted in return for a little extra payment to the priest. And so it was a, it was a dark, uh, sinister place. So once you'd been immersed in that sort of life for a lot, large part of your life, it was difficult in your memory and your imagination to separate a part of it from the whole thing. And so you, you take, for example, you, 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 you've encountered Jesus and Jesus says, hey, you can be free of that. You can just leave that alone. I want you to come out of that darkness. I want you to come into light. Your life can be totally different. But they found it really hard to split their old world up into different bits. And so that very smell of the meat that they once ate in the temple would bring the whole package flooding back to them. The priest chanting, the drink, the prostitutes waiting and your conscience couldn't cope with any element of that old package even if friends who hadn't had your background in the in the pagan temples had no problem with one aspect of that package which was the meat which to them seemed perfectly neutral Um, but to the people who'd been involved in that had got out of it it was a real stumbling block and so Paul says if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin I'll never eat meat again, so they won't cause him to fall. What a great attitude. Wanting absolutely the very, very best uh, for those that he loved, his brothers, uh, as, as members of his Christian faith family. And so, how do we apply that to us? I wonder, there's, these are probably really obvious examples, but it's worth thinking about and you might have some others. If I've got a friend and I know that he's had a massive gambling problem, I'll probably not take him to the RSL for dinner when I go out with him because just the sound of those poker machines in the background might be just enough to trigger in him something that's not healthy for him. And so if in, out of respect for him and, and wanting him to stay on the straight and narrow, if you like, I won't take him there. I'll go there myself. I might take my wife there because the poker machines mean nothing to me and the meal's pretty cheap. But it wouldn't be a healthy thing to take him there. What if I've got a friend who's a recovering alcoholic? I'm not going to take him out for a counter lunch because maybe the smell of the beer and the alcohol is just not going to be good for him. It doesn't take much for him to set, up, set it way off. 
Whereas other people could be perfectly good with one or two beers and, and it's not going to be a problem for them long term. But for my friend, man, that, that could be just the last straw. And I don't want him to fall back into that life that he's come, out, come away from. If I've got a friend and he can't manage his budget, he's just hopeless with money. I'm not going to go to Costco and buy him a membership for his birthday. You know, there's some things that are just obvious, aren't there? And uh, you can apply this in any sort of situation you like. But I think that the, the, the question we need to ask ourselves is, is my action, which might seem really neutral to me, is it likely to trip someone else up? You see, um, we can choose to give life-giving gifts to our friends or we can actually cause them to, to fall over. John Dunn, an old uh, poet, said that uh, no man is an island. And that's very, very true, isn't it? We, our, our, who we are and what we do influences other people either for good or for bad. Well, that's the third question and there's only one more to go. And it's really an all-embracing one. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 where he sort of sums up a lot of these things. He says a few of the things we've already said again. And then he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I've worded that. Will God's reputation be enhanced by what I do? As people look at me and the way I act, Will God's reputation be enhanced? Paul follows this up later in, in the chapter, or actually the very start of the next chapter, and he says to those who are reading, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's a massive thing for someone to say, isn't it? I'm following Jesus so closely that I want you to imitate me because I'm imitating him well. Uh, there's a challenge for us, isn't it? Whatever we do, do it all for the glory of God. Will God's reputation be enhanced by the way I conduct myself? Jesus could say, I always do what pleases my Father. I always do. And Paul could say, I'm imitating Jesus who always did that. I wonder if we were to imitate someone that we looked up to, whether we could be um, consistently helped. If someone's looking up to you as the only example of a follower of Jesus, I wonder what impression they'll get when they follow you. You know, Collingwood supporters in our Melbourne culture uh, are much maligned because every now and then you meet one of them and they don't represent the club well. And that's sad for all the honourable supporters of Collingwood and I know there are some here this morning. (laughs) But it's a fact of life. And if I only know one supporter and he doesn't carry himself well, the image of the whole club is tarnished, isn't it? And so if I'm the only example of a follower of Jesus that my friend sees, what impression will he get of the Jesus that I claim to follow? Worth thinking about, isn't it? Four questions. I think I've got them on one slide. Four questions. Four great little questions. Is it helpful? Will it get me in its grip? Will it trip someone else up? Will God's reputation be enhanced? I've remembered those in slightly different words for uh, something over 40 years because I found them helpful. I hope they're helpful for you. You might say, hey Steve, I can can see all that and yet I can look at my own life and I just see I do all sorts of things that aren't really helpful for me and there's things that have got a grip on me and I'm probably not a great example to the people around me and I'm not sure what God thinks about me. Maybe he's cross with me. You know, the beautiful thing about God is that he's the God of the second chance 
and the third chance, and so on. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have the offer of forgiveness for our past, and we also have the offer of a new strength, the very presence of God at work in us to face the future. And someone to say to me, I oh, see that's really hard and I'm not there. The, the wonderful thing is that all of us, every one of us is a work in progress. We want to be growing towards those sort of people who take responsibility really seriously for the actions and the, the thoughts of our lives. But we are works in progress and God isn't finished with us. He's not finished with me and I know he's not finished with you. But these questions are helpful, I hope. Don't despair, though, if you feel it's impossible. I think I've read to you once before, and I love this little uh, verse from an anonymous primary school teacher, and it talks about the second chance that we have. It's about a little student coming to the desk. He came to my desk with a quivering lip. The lesson was done. Have you a new sheet sheet for me, dear teacher? I've spoiled this one. I took his sheet, all soiled and blotted, and gave him a new one, all unspotted, and into his tired heart I cried, do better now, my child. I came to my God with a trembling heart. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear Master? I've spoiled this one. He took my day, all soiled and blotted, and gave me a new one, all unspotted, And into my tired heart he cried, do better now, my child. You see, God offers each one of us a fresh start and the strength to start doing better, to start living responsibly, to start living in the light of these sort of questions. uh, The the band's going to sing a song for us in closing. It's it's just a a wonderful song. It's a song that expresses the, the wonder of God's forgiveness through Jesus. Amazing love. How can it be? But it also expresses in the light of that forgiveness the desire to joyfully honour God in everything that we do, to take responsibility for who we are. And I just want to suggest this week on the last slide, just one um, first question. If you've not experienced God's forgiveness and his loving acceptance, there are people here today who'd love to talk to you about what that means. But if you have, I wonder if you'd be prepared to take on this seven-day responsibility challenge to actually reflect every day on the activities of your day at the end of the day and say, analyse some of the things you've done and say, was it helpful to me? Or is it beginning to have a negative grip on me? Did it trip someone else up? Or did it make God look good in the eyes of others? As they sing, maybe you might like to reflect on some of those things as we, we talked about and say to God, God, yeah, I want to take that challenge because I believe it would make a difference in my life. Uh, 6, 8, 10. Good maths, eh? I just was sitting here and thought, it'd be really good if we just create some space maybe for us to respond to Jesus and respond to God um, before we enter in time of worship. And we might just create a space for us to speak with him and to pray. And so I just want to read a, a passage from the book of James that says simply this, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. 
I wonder if you've brought God into your world this week in the different things you've been facing, the decisions that you've been sort of wrestling with and right now to pause and to speak to him would be just the appropriate thing to do. So maybe just as Chris plays, you might just invite God as he's here with us that you might just speak with him. Some of you might like to close your eyes, some of you might just like to sort of reflect and but just to allow God's spirit to actually work in and through you and you to respond to him. Steve said, um, you know, if, if you come and you realize you've, you've blown it this week in different ways, for you to be able to come to, to God and just say, God, I just confess my sin, my wrong. Would you cleanse me and wash me pure? Make me right in your eyes because of what Jesus has done. So just as Chris plays now, you'd like to ask God for his wisdom. I'd like to ask for his cleansing and his forgiveness. Why don't you just do that? <laughs> 